We all have a choice. Will I be ruined by regret or rise above it? Regret comes in all forms. We can all think of missed opportunities or loss. Maybe because of our choices or from the choices of others. But there is one who is at work within us. He takes our brokenness and makes us whole. He builds us. He restores us. Let us keep our eyes and heart on him because he is guiding us on the road back from regret. Wonderful. We're going to continue our series in the book of Nehemiah. But I, uh, I just want you to know, uh, I think there's just a few regrets as it pertains to the Mariners. How many know what I'm talking about? And I uh, have a couple pictures coming up here. I, uh, I tried to choose early in the week, you know, what I thought I would be saying here at this moment. I have to kind of pick my slides early. And, uh, you know, I read something from uh, Larry Stone in the Seattle Times. He was tweeting out during the game. He said, this game is going to be an all-time classic or have lingering, here's the word, regret. How many know I glued right onto that? Um, you know, there, there's probably two groups of baseball fans in here right now. Those that are going, oh, boys, good job. That was awesome. We love you. That was amazing. And then there's some of us other ones that think of the woulda, coulda, shoulda, what if this woulda happened, what if that woulda happened. Uh, how many are in the first group? Oh, we love you. It's awesome. It's wonderful. And how many are in the second group, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, living in the quagmire of regret? You know, my wife says, I don't think I'm going to watch sports with you anymore. Uh, I'm hanging on every pitch, and my golden retriever becomes a service dog laying on me because he knows I'm emotionally taxed, trying to calm me a little bit. And uh, now here's the beautiful thing, though. Marriage did great this year. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Just wait till next year, right? We're going to the World Series. Going to the World Series. And that kind of summarizes, in a way, kind of what we're talking about here when we walk through Nehemiah. You know, life is full of regrets, but we're not going to stay wallowing in the what-ifs, what what woulda, coulda, shoulda. We're looking ahead. The Mariners are looking ahead to the World Series next year. The question is, what are we looking ahead to? I mean, life is full of regret. We have all had all sorts of regrets. And I shared these books. Uh, I'm going to put this uh, slide up with these three books on it. You know, we talked about these uh, a little bit last, uh, last week. There you go. Um, and notice that each of these, these are not faith books particularly. Uh, these are, uh, you know, more secular books that talk about the subjects uh, at hand. But look how all of them move forward, move forward, move forward. The power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. The choice, embrace, embrace the possible. This is a lady who at age 16 was taken to Auschwitz. Bittersweet, how sorrow and longing make us whole. You know, each of these have a forward trajectory. And, and, and if we know anything about the Bible and, and what it means to follow Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus takes the brokenness of our life and brings healing. Amen? Jesus takes the brokenness of our life and brings wholeness. We don't have to live in the past. We can learn from it, but we can lean into the future and know that God has something very special for us to come. We've been walking through these, uh, we've, these different steps, eight steps to overcoming negative emotions and painful experiences. And I've got a slide here with the three steps on it here. It's kind of almost a flow chart, an org chart of sorts. And step one, which we talked about in week one, was what Nehemiah did. He realized the facts. He, he, he took a close look at the circumstances. 
Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been wiped out, the walls were gone, the people had been exiled, and it was a very, very bad situation. He didn't mince words. He didn't try to put on a happy front. It was terrible, even worse than terrible. It was bad. I think sometimes we like to sweep things under the rug and not deal with the facts and just put on a happy face and say, I'm okay, you're okay, when the reality is it's not okay. We're struggling. We're struggling in our marriage. We're struggling in our faith. We're struggling in our finances. You know, it's, it's okay to struggle. It's a part of life. What's not okay, he's saying, I'm just going to stay struggling for the rest of my life. No, God wants to help us overcome our struggles and move forward in him. Our struggles don't have to be the story of our life, just a few chapters. God has more chapters to write. Can I hear a big amen out there? And that's what Nehemiah teaches me. He, he, he realized, he faced the facts, and then if we find that, you know, our problems are a result of moral failure, like they were in Nehemiah's story, like David sinning against Bathsheba, then the very next step is to repent and say, God, forgive me, I am a sinner. And that's what Nehemiah did. We talked about it last week in verses 4 through 11. He said, I have sinned, uh, my forefathers have sinned. Uh, all of our people have sinned. We have sinned in your sight in such a way, God, that you took your hand of blessing off us and allowed us to just go on in our sin. And as a result, the temple was destroyed. The people were captured. We were exiled. The walls were destroyed. And we are undone. We are undone. And in step number two, he repented. He took ownership. He didn't, uh, you know, project the blame on others. He didn't cast blame on other people. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, the Adam and Eve in the garden you know, where Adam says, the woman made me do it. <laughs> and Eve said, the serpent made me do it. Everybody's blaming somebody else. No, Nehemiah took personal responsibility. And that's what we need to do. We need to come clean. We need to come before God and confess our sins. And if we do, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us. How many are thankful that God forgives? Now, maybe our circumstances are a result of, of other things. You know, maybe our life has just been devastated because of the loss of a loved one, or maybe, uh, you know, we're dealing with cancer, or maybe, you know, we, we've, we've lost our, our career, our job, our finances. It could be something that's not morally related. Uh, the third step is where we go to, whether uh, step two is a, a part of our story or not. Uh, it is for all of us to some degree, but, but maybe your pain is different. You know, maybe it's like the people in Florida who have lost everything to a hurricane, and you're trying to figure out, where do I go from here? Today we want to talk about risk, choosing recovery, because that's what Nehemiah did. And I want us to take a really close look at that. You know, there's been a, uh, a world regret survey that went out, and there were 105 countries involved and thousands and thousands of people surveyed. And the results of that survey, as I mentioned last week, could be summarized in four different categories. You know, there's such things as foundation regrets. These are people who said, man, I wish I would have prepared better for the future, like save for retirement, for example. Uh, boldness regrets. I, I wish I would have gone for it and started that new uh, business when I had the opportunity. Uh, moral regrets, obviously, uh, you know, we're well-versed in that as people of the Scripture. You know, uh, you know, I stepped out on my family. I lost our family resources and gambling. You know, I, I did these sinful things. And then there's connection regrets. You know, why didn't I make amends with my parents? Why didn't I build a bridge toward that friend? Why didn't I seek forgiveness from this other person? 
I think that's a great way to categorize it. I've always thought of our regrets in three categories. You know, the things we do to ourselves, the things others do to us, and then just the things that happen to us. Cancer and hurricanes just happen to us. We don't, we don't have a real option there. People can be very mean and do things to us. Anybody ever met just one mean person in your life? Let me see your hand out there. Hey, don't point at somebody. I didn't say to point. I just said raise your hand for heaven's sake. Come on now. We're in church. Get it together. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's different categories of regret, and I just believe this about human nature. We all have something in our life that, you know, uh, you know, a missed opportunity or a relationship or a situation or a dalliance with, with sin or something that we, we just wished it would have been different. We would have, could have, should have, I wish it would have been different. And we're talking about regret, and Nehemiah, if anybody dealt with regret effectively, he certainly did. I think it's helpful as we look at the book of Nehemiah just to kind of hang things on a timeline. I enjoy this. Uh, Lisa and I are taking 50 people, can you believe it, to the Holy Land next spring. And we have a meeting every uh, month on Zoom. And last week uh, we walked through a, a whole timeline of the Bible, New Testament, Jesus' life, that kind of thing. And uh, I just find it very helpful to kind of hang things on a timeline. And you know, in 722 B.C., which isn't on this slide particularly, um, you know, the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom. That's 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are uh, exiled, and they never got to come back. Uh, the southern kingdom uh, that we're looking at right here was sacked in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, and the temple was destroyed, and the walls were destroyed, and the people were exiled, and it was terrible. But in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Persian comes on the scene, destroys the Babylonians, and says to the Israelites, you can go back. And so they start going back to rebuild the temples, Arubabal in 538, go back to rebuild spiritual life, 440 BC, Ezra. And then Nehemiah, this is the story we're talking about during these few weeks, 430 BC, goes back to rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah's job was so important, I can't overstress it. If you don't rebuild the wall, then the spiritual life is going to eventually unravel because enemies can just come in. And the temple will probably be destroyed again because enemies can come in. And your wife, your children, your family, your livelihood, none of that will be protected because the enemy will want to come in and destroy everything. So the story we're looking at and Nehemiah's role is huge. It's just really, really important. I just want to kind of overemphasize that. Recovery is worth the risk. Nehemiah shows us this. Recovery is worth the risk. You might say, I don't really want to broach this subject with that person and try to repair our relationship. It's not worth the risk. It might go worse. Uh, I don't want to work on dealing with my past and find healing in my past. It's not worth the risk. It's going to open wounds that I really don't want to address. You know, I don't want to deal with my addiction. I don't want to, you know, work through my affair. I don't want to deal with my financial issues. I want to kind of just forget about it. But if we want to find healing and wholeness, we need to be willing to step out and risk recovery. We need to risk finding healing and finding hope. The story of a woman in the New Testament who had the blood disease for 12 years and she wasn't supposed to go around people. She was excommunicated outside of the city. But she risked everything by coming in and finally touching the bottom of Jesus' robe. You remember that story? And she was healed. But, but she took a great risk. 
Had she been found out, it would have been worse. Had Jesus not healed her, it would have been just the the nail in the coffin in more ways than one. I find that risk and faith kind of grow in the same soil. We step out in faith. We we risk. We we step out. We trust. You know, all of those ideas kind of work together a little bit. Edie Ager, the gal that I've told you about a few times, her book is the one, the choice that's on the screen. It took her three and a half decades to finally go back to Auschwitz and face her pain and really find healing. Understandable. What she went through in Auschwitz. But as she tells a story, all the years leading up to that, there was more regret and more resentment and more bitterness and more hurt and more problems that she had to deal with, largely because she hadn't dealt with the main issue. And she finally goes back, and hers is a story of great resiliency and recovery, willing to risk, willing to step out and overcome. Well, today I want to talk about some roadblocks to recovery. What are the roadblocks that keep me from finding the road back from regret? And Nehemiah shows us three. And I want us to take a look at him. The first one is this. When my fear is too great, I probably won't try. Nehemiah had great fear. It says it right here. Look at the first couple of verses. The king says, hey, why does your face look so sad? You're not even sick. (laughs) Why do you look so sad? Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Fear. The thing about Nehemiah, among many things that I really appreciate, is he didn't fake it till he could make it. I mean, what you saw was the whole package. He's in the presence of the king, and he is about as despondent, discouraged as you can imagine. That's the sense of what we're reading here. And why was he afraid? Well, you need to understand the culture and context a little bit. According to many scholars, to be a, a, a wine taster or a cup bearer, It was a really important job in those days. I mean, you ate all the food, and if you died, then the king wouldn't have to die. How many know that's a great job? (laughs) Um, Among other things. But one of the things that the historians tell us is that the responsibility of a cupbearer was to be joyful and happy. You were to bring nothing to the table that would bring the spirits of the king down. You were to prioritize the king. The king was to be the priority, not you, not your feelings, not your emotions, not what you're dealing with. You put on a happy face, you come into uh, his presence, and everything is hunky-dory, everything's great, inspiring, joyful. That's what it's supposed to be about. Nehemiah couldn't do it. He was too devastated. This tells me how really, really bad it was for him. And he has been rocked to the core, and he can't fake it. But he knows that in that culture... If you're in his job and you don't bring it like you're supposed to all the time, that you could face literally execution. It was tantamount to treason. Anything you do to prioritize yourself over the king, no, that's a no-go. And so Nehemiah is going, I can't deal with all I'm dealing with, and now I'm really afraid because this could be the end of me. Fear. We all have faced fear. Some of you are dealing with it right now, I'm sure of that. Shout out to all of our friends in traditions, all of our friends online, everybody in this service and other services. I know within the sound of my voice there are many people grappling, dealing, struggling with fear. We all experience fear as an emotion. You know, somebody swerves, almost cuts you off and drives you in the ditch. You go, whoa, that's kind of scary. 
uh, but then you get kind of yourself together. But I'm talking about something more than just the emotion of fear. I'm talking about living in fear, living in fear. Nehemiah could have lived in fear to a point that it kept him from finding the road back from regret and being a part of the answer and the solution to the Israelite story. Fear. It can keep us from finding the road back. Ryan Holiday has written a book called Courage is Calling. And it's a great book about courage and kind of the antithesis here of, of fear. And he tells a story that many of you are familiar with, uh, Florence Nightingale, who uh, many consider to be the founder of modern nursing, a social reformer, a statistician, all those wonderful things. And he tells her story in you know, a very uh, inspiring way about at age 16, uh, interesting Edie Ager was 16 when she was taken to Auschwitz. At age 16, Florence Nightingale received a vision, a dream, a calling. Something about young gals at age 16. There you go. But she has this, this vision that she doesn't want to just be the, the daughter of a rich family. She wants to do something significant with her life. But back in uh, you know, the 1800s, during her life where she lived, that was not possible. You know, there's a very, very narrow path, and you had to walk it, and if you didn't, you know, you were kind of cast out of your family and considered uh, egocentric, that kind of thing. So she sat on her dream for eight years. Eight years years later, she's looking around, and she sees a bunch of things that captures her attention. Life expectancy was barely 40 years. In many cities, mortality was higher for patients inside of the hospital than out. Hello, it's not supposed to be that way. How many know what I'm talking about? In the Crimean War, where she would later distinguish herself, just 1,800 men men out of 100,000 died of wounds, but more than 16,000 died of disease. And another 13,000 were rendered unavailable to serve because of disease. Finally, another call came eight years after that age 16 calling, and she said, I'm going for it. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going I'm to step out and, and I'm going to do what I feel I need to do to be helpful in this whole nursing area. I don't want to be just a, uh, you know, a rich daughter of a rich family. I want to do something very, very significant. And so she stepped out. She took a risk in order to make a difference. And her mother disowned her, called her to disgrace. Her father thought she was pompous, prideful, and arrogant. Rest of her family disowned her, called her a criminal. Nobody was with her. She stepped out, did what she felt she needed to do. She said, How little can be done under the spirit of fear? She takes the leap, buys a lot of resources with her own money, and seeks to make a difference. And it cost her a lot. She came down with the Crimean fever that haunted her the rest of her life. But the rest of the history books will say how vital and life-saving and life-giving her impact was. What What if she would have given in to fear? What if she wouldn't have taken the risk? What if she wouldn't have stepped out? What if Esther, Ruth, what if James, John, Peter? What if Jesus wouldn't have come? What if Moses, Abraham, Joshua, Joseph just kind of walked through the entire Bible? Each and every one of these people and many more had to take a step of faith, had to risk personal something 
in order to get to where God wanted them to go. How about you? How about me? We need faith over fear. We need to be willing to step out and be and do whatever God calls us. Why are we so risk averse? Why are we so risk averse? I think it's because we think, well, maybe it'll get better. Or maybe I can just kind of forget about it. Maybe I just deal with my own fear and and kind of forget about it. Maybe it'll go away. Nehemiah said, I'm not going to give in to fear. I'm going to rise above fear. And I'm going to do what God has called me to do. There are 365, arguably, 365 different fear not statements in the Bible. One for every day of the year. God does not want us to live in fear. We may face the emotion of fear from time to time, but not live in it. Listen to these scriptures. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Where does God want you to step out from the ruins of the past and rise above and find wholeness and healing? Where does he want you to move forward? In your faith, in your family, in your finances, in your relationships. You can make that list as long, as long and as easy as I can. Where does God want you to step up and step forward? The second roadblock to finding the road back from regret that I see here in verse number three this time is this thing where we say, the problem is just way too big. <laughs> it's more than I can handle. And even though we don't say it, we're basically saying, I can't handle it and neither can God, so let's just forget about it. Let's just sweep this under a rug and, and just kind of ignore it. Let's ignore it. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll go away. Look at what it says here. But the king said, but then I said to the king, after he says, why are you so despondent? May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? To miss how devastating all of this was to Nehemiah is to miss the whole idea of the book. You need to understand how devastating, how distraught, how difficult, how overwhelming, how bad the situation was. He's basically saying to the king who has every right to execute him, have him wiped out. He says, you know, since you asked, the reason I am so devastated is this. He was the real deal. You know, what you saw is what you got. He's discouraged. He's despondent. I'm sure he did probably a pretty good job uh, doing his job otherwise, but this just wiped him out. He was overwhelmed, totally burdened by the circumstances. Ever felt that way? Ever felt like your problems were bigger than you could handle? Ever not sure what way to go, what step to take? We're going to talk about taking certain steps next week, but have you ever been there going, "Ah, man, I'm just blinded by this. I, I don't know what to do. It's just so overwhelming. I have talked to so many people. I talked to a gentleman recently who said, you know, uh, my wife walked out on me, and uh, we went through a divorce. And I spent the next several years with resentment and bitterness, not only at her, but at God. God, how could you let this happen to me? And I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed by it. Until finally some people helped guide me and get me back on track, and I was able to find my way 
find the road back from my regret. Maybe you can relate. Nehemiah's circumstances were overwhelming. I'm sure it was tempting for him to ignore it, just like it is for us. But he took a risk and chose recovery. He chose to find the road back from his regret. Overwhelmed? Join the club. Edie Ager, as I mentioned, took her three and a half decades to go back to Auschwitz, but she finally did. Talking about a huge problem, and then Auschwitz and all that came with that created more problems and more problems in her life as she details. There's another Edith besides Edith Egger, the young girl that went to Auschwitz, that I came across her story recently. Are you familiar with the name Edith Piaf? How many of you are musical aficionados? I mean, you're just musical historians. Let me see your hand. Raise it high with pride and enthusiasm. All two of you. Um, well, some of you will know this name. In the first service, there was a, uh, a couple that came out and said, oh, yeah, we've heard of her. Well, you know, she was faced with an opportunity to select some new music on October 24th, 1960. That's about 62 days, 62 years ago to the day. Now, when I think of the 60s, uh, I know the Beatles. Anybody ever heard of the Beatles? But I don't know about Edith. I don't know her story. But I was interested to read her story, especially when it comes to the song. In just a moment, I'll share that. For most of us, Edith was a famous entertainer in France, one of the best-known singers in the entire world. She's also quite frail. She's only 44 years of age, had been addicted to many substances, had lived a hard life, uh, been in accidents. Her body was beaten and broken. She weighed less than 100 pounds uh, on, on this particular date. And she had just come out of the hospital where she had been in a coma uh, for quite some time because of liver damage. The song proposal from these agents came to her. And at first she resented, resented, uh, resisted, excuse me, then she recanted. Then she said, well, maybe I'll consider just one song. And make a long story short, she considered the one song. And it had these lyrics, and this is why I tell the story. No, nothing at all. No, I regret nothing at all. It's paid, swept away, forgotten. I couldn't care less about the past. A few weeks later, she performed the two-minute, 19-second song on French TV. In December of that year, she performed it at the El Olympia, the premier Parisian concert venue, to 22 curtain calls. By the end of the following year, fans had purchased more than a million copies of her I Regret Nothing at All song. And three years later... She was dead. I regret nothing. See, one of the benefits of regret is it forces us to look back and deal with pain, deal with problems, deal with things that we need to overcome to move forward. We all have things in our past that we wished we would have done different or, or went about differently or opportunities we missed, relationships we wish we would have reached out to and restored, whatever the case might be. But a lot of people are like Edith, where it's just easy to kind of move forward. And it seemed like her life kind of echoed the words of the song, no regrets. No need to look back and learn from the past so that I can make better or important changes and adjustments for the future. We say, it's too impossible. I'm just going to kind of 
live the rest of my life like I am. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just overwhelming. I don't know where to start. Paul talked about how our sufferings and trials and problems, if we take them to God and look to God and say, God, help me, help me, go through this, grow through this, he will. Martin Luther said the most amazing scripture in all the Bible to him was found in Romans chapter 5. Here's just a few verses from Romans 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Like James in chapter 1, 2 through 4 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Consider pure joy when you face trials because you know the trials will produce perseverance and maturity and character. God will help you and me overcome and not be overrun. But whatever issues, suffering, trials, problems, use the word that you like the best. God can help us work through our regret. The fear may be great, but it's not too great for God. The problem might be overwhelming, but not for God. And Nehemiah shows us that even though the fear was great and his problems were overwhelming, he still was willing to step out, take a risk, take a step of faith because he served a great God. Finally, number three, my resolve is too weak. My resolve is too weak. I'm not strong enough to work through this. I, 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 you know, I'm going to give up. I can't persevere. I can't overcome it. And look, look what the king says. The king asks him, what do you want? I'm going to come back to that, but that is one of the most powerful questions I've seen in the Bible in a long time. What do you want? And then Nehemiah says, well, since you asked, I want you to send me back to Jerusalem so I can rebuild the wall. That's what I want. And I think the question that the king of kings is asking every single one of us here today. The king in the Nehemiah story said, Nehemiah, what do you want? But I think that's what the king of kings is saying to you and me. What do you want? I want to be free from my addiction. I want to overcome the pain of my past. I want to rise above my broken marriage. I want to see what I can do to restore this relationship. That's what I want. What do you want? Jesus is looking at every single one of us and saying, what do you want? You must choose. You must choose. We all have a chance and we all have a choice. We have a chance because we're alive and we have a choice to step forward in faith with God. Take a step. Risk. Have faith in God. Can I hear a big amen? amen. God doesn't want to keep us wallowing in our past. He wants us to rise above. And I don't say that flippantly. I say it with full awareness of what some of you are dealing with and what many others have dealt with through the years. As a pastor, you're privy to information and stories and heartache that maybe others aren't quite as much. My resolve is too weak. What do you want? What do you want, Nehemiah? Well, I want to get on the road back from regret. I want to break through this roadblock called fear and overwhelming problems and, and a lack of resolve. Nehemiah shows great resolve. He says, send me. I want to rebuild. What do you need to rebuild? Is it your marriage? Relationship with your son or daughter? Your finances? Your faith? Your health? Your career? Your reputation? 
renewed hope because of missed opportunities. A great prayer to pray is God, make me resolved, make me resolute, make me resilient. To me, those are great faith words that we see in Noah and Moses and Abraham and Esther and Ruth and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and James and John and Paul. Give me great faith so I'll be resolved and resolute and resilient and keep my eyes on you. I was thinking about that here this week as I uh, was pondering a story, and I want to close with this. A few weeks ago, we uh, came back from Albania, and I was just reminded that back in about 2016, I called missionary Terry Peretti, and I said, Terry, um, we have this thing called Global Church Partnerships at BCA where we go to different parts of the world, and we want to have a global church partnership in every region of the world, so to speak. And right now, we're in uh, Iswatini, you know, South Africa area. Uh, we're in Sumba, Indonesia. Uh, we've just uh, recently uh, come back from Cuba. Uh, we have a medical missions work that happens all around. And, uh, you know, what's going on in your part of the world? He's been our long-term missionary in Italy. This is about 2016. I'm in the car, talk to him as I'm driving. He said, what about Albania? I'm going, Albania? I've heard of Albania, but where in the world is Albania? I had to get out a map and refresh my memory. You know, it's, uh, you know, just south of Montenegro, you know, just, you know, to the west of Macedonia. It's just north of Greece. You go down to the southern tip of Italy and swim across the Adriatic and you land in Duras, Albania. I said, tell me more. He tells me about missionary Kurt Plagenhoff and Pastor Gazim there in the great Duras church. He said, it's a small church. Less than one half of 1% are Christian, Rob. 99.5% at that point in time or more were non-Christian and many antagonistic toward Christianity. He said, it's, it's very, very hard soil. Kind of impossible. It's going to take a miracle. I said, did you say impossible? Tell me more. You say it will take a miracle? I'd like to hear more. And he begins to tell me about Pastor Gazim and their awesome church. And they need a building and they need to find property. But, you know, it's just impossible to find land. And it's impossible to find the money to buy the land. But we need a beacon. We need a, a home of hope and light in that particular uh, part of the world and certainly in that nation. Make a long story short, we just came back from our fifth trip to Albania. And to make a longer story short, you see in this, these pictures the new property, the impossible property that you as a church family helped purchase. BCA was the largest contributor to this land that was impossible to find and impossible to purchase. As I stood here and as we gathered as a team and we prayed and marched around the property, we gathered around in a big prayer circle and, and, I, uh, and I said to the folks, I'm really sorry, I started breaking down. I said, you know, this is very, very touching to me. We are standing on impossible ground right now. We are standing on what we all knew was impossible. It would take a miracle and now we're standing on a miracle. And one day there's going to be another miracle and the wall that we contributed to is going to be built. And then the next miracle, the building is going to be built. And then the greatest miracle, this thing is going to be full many times every single week with people seeking Christ. 
This is impossible. This beautiful piece of land, about the size of a football field, is going to be the home of a great church in a part of the world that desperately needs hope in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. I want to ask you today, what in your life is impossible? What in your life needs a miracle? You say, my marriage is on the rocks. It's just impossible. There's no hope. You know, my health is going sideways. You know, my career has been jettisoned. My reputation is in the dumps. And you list off this, that, or the next thing, whatever. It's impossible. Nothing is impossible with God, amen? It may be impossible to me, and it may be impossible to you. But we need to have a faith, a resolve, a resiliency that says, God, I believe in you, and I am not giving up, amen? I'm not giving up. And I want to encourage you from all that was within me. Whatever you're dealing with now or will it be in the near future, whatever you're grappling with, never, never lose hope. Nehemiah didn't. And we're going to continue with this story next week, but for today, he chose recovery. He wasn't overwhelmed by fear, overwhelmed by the size of the problem or you know, dumped into the gutter because he lacked resolve. He, he wrestled with all of that in a very real way. But God helped him overcome those roadblocks and find the road back from regret. Let's pray. All over this place, in the chapel, online, and right here in the main auditorium, how many would raise your hand and say, Pastor Rob, pray for me. I'm going through a really tough thing right now. It's impossible. It's overwhelming. I need God's help. I need God's help. Would you just lift your hand and hold it high? Here in the main worship center, just lift your hand, hold it high. All over this place, I'm going through a really challenging circumstance. God knows what it is. I know what it is. Maybe nobody else knows what it is. God bless you. God bless you. Just like the first service today, many, many hands right here. And I'm sure many hands online and many hands in the chapel. My hand's up. God, we're going through some stuff that's overwhelming. It can even create anxiety and fear. God, give us the faith and resolve to persevere. But God, it feels impossible at times. We need your hand. We need a miracle. We need the power of God to be seen in this circumstance. God, I just pray that you'll pour out your love and compassion on every one of us that are here today. God, may we sense the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords as we answer the question, what do we want? We know, God, you're at work in our heart, in our mind, in our spirit to help us understand what we need as well as what we want. Maybe you're here today, friend, and really the first step for you is to commit or recommit your life to Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to do so right here and now online, in one of our services on campus, just simply pray, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin. I want to become a Christ follower. And I invite you online or here in person just to fill out that connection card and just say, hey, today I committed my life to Christ. Or, hey, I'm going through a hard time. I need a miracle. Please pray for me. I want to invite us to stand all over this place. And as we do, I'm going to invite our prayer team here in the worship center to come forward. 
I'm going to invite our uh, pastors and traditions and online to lead the uh, closing of the service in an appropriate way in those venues. But right here in the worship center, I want to invite you, friend, as we sing this song, just to step out from where you are and come forward and present your need to the Lord. It's just a step of faith. You can be specific or, or be general and just say, hey, would you pray for me about a matter? And just take a step of faith. Just step out. Step out. Take a step. We want to gather around you and pray. Maybe you're standing in for someone who's going through a really hard time. Maybe you're praying for a relationship. Maybe you're praying about your ministry or your your finances or your family. It could be your faith. It could be any number of things. As we sing, I just invite you to step out from where you are and come and let's pray together. Let's sing. Let's sing together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be thy name.